It's September, 1983. Sergeants Glenn Flothy and Lyle Hogsman, homicide detectives with the Alaska State Troopers, are sitting in an unmarked car parked on Old Harbor Road in the Muldoon suburb of Anchorage, Alaska. They seem to be doing nothing, just idly watching the world go by. Except from time to time, Sergeant Flothy lifts a camera fitted with an enormous zoom lens and takes a photograph of the house opposite. The house belongs to a local businessman, 44-year-old Robert Hansen, owner of a popular bakery and cafe in Anchorage. Now, this is a nice neighborhood. It's a good place to bring up a family, which is precisely what Hansen is doing. Outwardly, it looks like this man is living the American dream. He keeps a light aircraft at an airfield nearby, which he loves to fly over the spectacular Alaskan wilderness. Hansen just can't get enough of the great outdoors. He's a keen huntsman, specializing in the crossbow and bow and arrow. He currently holds the world record for a doll sheep taken by bow after he killed a ram with 42-inch horns in 1971. There's rumors among some of the hunting fraternity that he cheated, shooting the ram with a high-powered rifle before firing an arrow into it. But there's no proof he did. Of course there isn't. Hansen's way too clever to get caught out like that. One thing's for sure. Hansen likes to kill. In fact, State Trooper Sergeant Glenn Flothy believes there's a vicious serial killer hiding behind this respectable suburban facade. What Flothy wants more than anything is to get inside the house and find the evidence that'll prove his hunch. There's no chance of that without a search warrant. That's why Flothy's spending every hour he can gathering the evidence he needs to get one. Truth be told, Flothy's become a little obsessed with Robert Hansen. The man's got inside his head, keeping him awake at night as the state trooper tries to work out the best way to catch him before he kills another girl. A car pulls up on Hansen's drive. His wife, Darla, gets out with the couple's two children. Darla's active in the local church. She teaches special needs children. Flothy wonders if she has any idea of the horrendous crimes her husband has committed. The Hansons have been together for 20 years. How could you be married to someone that long and not know what they're really like? But maybe it's just too dark, too difficult for any human being to contemplate that the person they're sharing their life with is a monster, that the American dream they're living is in fact a nightmare. Flothy lifts the camera again. This time, Darla Hansen sees him. A troubled expression flits across her face. Flothy doesn't care he's been seen. He wants to be seen. He wants Darla Hansen to go inside that house and tell her husband that there's two men sitting in a car across the road taking photographs of the house. He wants her to ask him if he's got any idea what the hell's going on. It's about time Robert Hansen started to feel the heat. 
Sergeant Flothy lowers the camera and nods to his partner. That's enough for now. Maybe the word will get around among the neighbors that a couple of cops have been snooping around. And Flothy wouldn't mind if it does. My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we stay with Alaska State Trooper Sergeant Glenn Flothy as he closes in on Alaska's most prolific serial killer. In his determination to deliver justice for the victims, he tries to get inside the killer's head calling in experts from the FBI's Criminal Profiling Unit in Quantico. But even when he's sure he has his man, he faces pushback from above. Has he got enough evidence to secure a conviction? Or will the killer slip through the legal net as he has so many times before? From Noiser, this is the story of hunting the hunter. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. Back at State Trooper HQ, the faces of Anchorage's missing women stare out at Flothy from the wall of his office, silently urging him on. He's determined to do everything he can to deliver justice for them. The only way to do that is to take the man he believes is targeting them off the streets. All he has on Hanson for now is the alleged kidnapping and rape of a sex worker named Cindy Paulson. But the Anchorage Police Department dropped those charges. Flothy now checks to see if there's anything else in Hansen's record. The only thing that shows up on the computer system is a 1977 charge for larceny. Despite being a successful businessman, Hansen attempted to shoplift a chainsaw from a hypermarket. It's an odd and unsettling offense. So Flothy digs deeper, talking to senior colleagues in the force. He discovers that shoplifting isn't the only trouble Hansen has got into over the years. In fact, he has a long and disturbing history of crimes against women. So why was there no record? Turns out, it's a simple clerical error. The APD recently upgraded its computer system. It looks like Hansen's rap sheet accidentally got wiped. Flothy gets in touch with Alaska State Troopers HQ in Juneau. They send him the full file on Hansen. It makes for a disturbing reading. Hansen's offending started in 1961 when at the age of 22, he was convicted of arson after burning down a school bus depot in his hometown of Pocahontas, Idaho. He served less than two years of a three-year sentence. Okay, so then Hansen moves to Anchorage in 1967, by which time he was married to his wife, Darla. It was in Alaska his criminality entered a new disturbing phase. In 1971, Hansen was found guilty of assaulting a young receptionist at a real estate firm. In a separate incident in the same year, he was also accused of kidnapping a sex worker. 
According to the kidnap victim, Manson told her he had killed people before and that he would kill her if she didn't do what he wanted. Unbelievably, Hansen cut a deal with the DA's office and was only convicted for the initial assault. The kidnapping charge was dropped. Hansen was sentenced to five years, but served just three months before he was paroled. There are other crimes in 1971 that this guy was linked to. He was the suspect in the murder of 18-year-old Celia Beth Van Zanten whose frozen body was discovered in McCuckreed State Park. But the police focused their investigation on a youth who was known to the victim. A frustrating conclusion, but some good came of it. The case encouraged another young woman to come forward. She told a horrific story of being kidnapped at gunpoint by Hanson. But because she was a sex worker and Hanson was a quote-unquote respected member of the community, her word wasn't enough to put him away. In 1975 and 79, two more women accused Hansen of violent predatory behavior. But it's as if he's covered in Teflon. Nothing sticks to this guy. With everything that Glenn Flothy reads, he's more convinced that Hansen is the killer he's looking for. Now, He's just got to prove it. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I've spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate the minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows? We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The curious history of your home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to the curious history of your home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. Flothy works 12-hour shifts to build the case against Hansen. He's desperate to talk to Cindy Paulson. He remembers reading about Carol Durange, the 18-year-old who escaped from Ted Bundy's clutches. Like Durange, in that case... Cindy could prove crucial to nailing Hanson. But finding her is easier said than done. He doesn't even know if she's still in Alaska. After her experience with Hanson, not to mention her treatment at the hands of the APD, he wouldn't be surprised if she's gone back to her hometown of Seattle. Now, to help him track down Cindy, Flothy reaches out to a vice cop called Gentilly who takes him on a tour of Anchorage's red light district. They stop at strip clubs, topless bars, and seedy hotels, but don't find any sign of Cindy. Gentilly promises to keep his ears to the ground. Two days later, he calls Flothy with the good news. He's located Cindy, and she's willing to talk. 
When Flothy first meets Cindy Paulson, he's struck by how young she is. Underneath all her gaudy makeup, she's a frightened, vulnerable 17-year-old. Yeah, she might talk tough and try to come across as a veteran of the streets, but she's just a kid. He can see that. Lothi's heart goes out to her. Winning the traumatized girl's trust is a slow, patient process, but Glenn Flothi is the perfect man for the job. At first, the meetings take place on neutral ground, in a hotel room or cafe, anywhere that's not a police station. Flothi's main job is to listen. He doesn't pressure Cindy to talk about the incident. He just has to convince her that he's on her side. Eventually, he gains her confidence. She agrees to come into Trooper headquarters and go over the statement she made to the police after Hanson kidnapped her. In a quiet interview room, Cindy Paulson tells her story. Now, we're not going to go into the details on it here. Even an experienced homicide detective like Glenn Flothy would find it harrowing to listen to. Suffice it to say, it was an utterly horrifying ordeal that's burned into Cindy's memory. As she tells Flothy the story, it's almost as though she's reliving the experience. Flothy feels bad about putting her through it, but he needs to hear it in her own words. By the end, tears are streaming down her face, causing her mascara to run down her cheeks in black smears. So Flothy rushes out to get her some tissues. How the cops at the APD could not believe this girl baffles Flothy. He's never been more sure that someone's telling the truth in his life. Cindy dabs her eyes with a tissue and blows her nose. Gradually, her composure returns. She does her best to restore the tough exterior she likes to present to the world, but her inner vulnerability's been exposed now. It still shows. Glenn Flothy speaks quietly, his voice more like a sympathetic counselor than a cop. Do you feel he was going to hurt you? Cindy's reply is bleak. She says she didn't feel anything. I knew I wasn't going to live. I mean, the man, what he did to me, he had to kill me. She goes on, every time the gun was in my face, I knew I was in trouble. Now Flothy has no doubt that Hansen's an extremely dangerous individual. He's killed in the past and he'll kill again if no one stops him. After escorting Cindy out of the station, the detective orders Hansen to be placed under immediate 24-hour surveillance. It's time to turn up the heat on the baker. On September 28, 1983, dental records confirm the identity of the latest victim as 31-year-old Paula Goulding. The story of her disappearance in April 1983 follows a familiar pattern, right down to meeting a mysterious man who offered her $200 for a lunch date. Soon after, the FBI ballistics lab at Quantico comes back with a result on the 223 shell casings found at Sherry Morrow's and Paul Goulding's burial sites. Both were fired from the same gun. Not only that, 
bullet fragments found in Sherry Morrow's chest are also confirmed as 223 caliber. And there's something else, too. Something you might describe as a little niche. One of the casings discovered was consistent with the cartridge itself being reloaded. Most people buy factory-loaded ammo. You know, the kind that you take out of the box and load straight into your gun. Only true firearms enthusiasts go to the trouble of reloading their own previously used cartridges. To do it, you need specialized equipment. And if Hansen has reloading equipment, it could be another circumstantial detail linking him to the victims. In the meantime, Flothy is desperate to stop Hansen any way he can. He looks deeper into his suspect's past to see if there's anything he can pin on him. He discovers that Hansen had made an insurance claim after a burglary in which his hunting trophies were apparently stolen. He was paid $13,000 by the insurance company, which he used to buy his plane. Flothy smells a rat. He suspects that the insurance claim is fraudulent. Maybe this is something they can use to get Hansen off the streets while they continue to gather enough evidence to charge him with murder. He takes it to the DA, asking for a search warrant. But the DA doesn't like fishing expeditions. He tells Flothy to come back when he's got something more concrete. The DA's not interested in the Cindy Paulson kidnapping either. They can't go after Hansen for a case the APD has already dropped. So, to move things forward, Flothy decides he needs to get inside Hansen's head. The full file on Hansen that Flothy received from AST headquarters in Juneau contained a number of psychiatric reports made after each of his previous offenses. Flothy reads over them carefully and discovers that Hansen was diagnosed as suffering from bipolar disorder and kleptomania. Also, a severe stutter led him to having a difficult time in school. One psychiatrist recorded how, as a teenager, Hansen had fantasized about doing all sorts of harmful things to girls who rejected him. Another described his behavior as psychotic. When Hansen was sentenced for the 1971 assault on the real estate receptionist, the judge consulted his psychiatric evaluation, which led him to conclude, I believe you have a serious mental illness and one which makes you, under certain circumstances, extremely dangerous to others in the community. To help him understand Hansen more, Flothy puts in a call to the FBI's Behavioral Sciences Division in Quantico. They are the country's leading experts on serial killers. Flothy speaks to the head of the unit, Roy Hazelwood, and gives him a top-line summary of the crime. He's about to go into detail on the suspect, but Hazelwood cuts him off. He wants to see if he can produce an accurate profile based on the crime scene alone. A few minutes later, Hazelwood shares a thumbnail profile of the killer. Aged between 33 and 44, respectable member of the community, keen hunter and outdoorsman, a hardworking guy 
maybe in a business, wife, very religious. All of this fits Hanson. A few days later, two agents from the Behavioral Sciences Division arrive in Anchorage to help with the case. They produce a more detailed profile on the killer, which is an uncannily accurate description of Robert Hansen, right down to the stutter. The FBI profilers reveal that the suspect most likely has a murder kit containing various disguises. That's not all. The killer probably also keeps trophies, jewelry or other personal items taken from his victims. This stash of mementos is emotionally important to the killer, so it's unlikely that he'll have gotten rid of it. One agent tells Flothy, quote, he likes to keep it close to him so he can view it in private. He takes it out and relives the killings. It's like a movie in his brain. He's turned on by the objects he takes from the scene. The other agent provides a chilling insight into Hansen's mind. The killings are all he thinks about, 24 hours a day. Everything else is just emotion to him. His work, his normal routine, just emotion. Everything is wrapped up in murder, his whole life, his whole thinking. He probably plans the kills far in advance. Lothi needs to find Hanson's trophy store. To do that, he's got to get the search warrant. But has he got enough to persuade the DA now? He doesn't want to take any chances. So he keeps pushing on the insurance fraud angle until he finds a witness who'd been inside Hanson's house recently. This man reports seeing Hanson's hunting trophies on the wall. Flothy shows him a photograph he got from Hanson's insurance company of the trophies in place before the burglary. His witness identifies them as the ones he saw. Flothy lines up another meeting with the DA. This time, he has the FBI's backing that Robert Hansen is the killer they're looking for. The strategy he's proposing is the same as before. To get a search warrant on the back of the insurance fraud and other lesser crimes of Hansen's that he's discovered. The hope is that they'll then be able to find proof of his serial killing. It's a clever plot, but the DA is still uncomfortable with it. His fear is that a court will say they got their evidence illegally and they'll miss their chance to put Hansen away. Eventually, the decision's made to issue a search warrant. The insurance fraud is on there, but the main charges are Hansen's known and suspected crimes against women. Their aim in compiling the warrant is to persuade a judge that Hansen is extremely dangerous, that they have justifiable grounds for searching his premises as the prime suspect in a murder investigation. And for that reason, they include everything they have on him. First, there's the assault of the real estate receptionist in 1971. Although Hansen's already been convicted of this, it's on there as proof of violence against women. The same goes for the kidnapping and rape of a sex worker, also in 71, even though the charge was dropped in a plea bargain. There's also another kidnapping and rape in 1975, 
and attempted kidnapping in 1979, the murder of Sherry Moreau in 1982, the murder of Paula Goulding in 1983, the kidnapping, rape, and attempted murder of Cindy Paulson in 1983. It's a grim and depressing list. As far as Robert Hansen is concerned, it'll all turn out to be only the tip of the iceberg. While Flothy and the DA's office work round the clock to cross the T's and dot the I's on a 48-page warrant, State troopers keep up the pressure on Hansen. Even the Fish and Wildlife Division is called in to help. One of their officers strikes up a conversation with Hansen at the airfield where he keeps his plane. The subject of guns and ammo comes up. Hansen lets slip a crucial admission, telling the officer that he reloads his own cartridges. Now, if you remember, the FBI ballistics lab had found that one of the recovered cartridge shells was consistent with reloading. This information is added to the warrant at the 11th hour, making it even stronger. On October 26, 1983, the warrant is presented to the judge in his own chambers. He approves it without hesitation. At 8.30 the following morning, Alaska State Troopers Bullington and Smith enter Hansen's bakery on the corner of 9th and Ingra. They ask to see the boss. A short, bespectacled man comes out from the back, still wearing his baker's apron. When he sees the trooper's uniforms, he blinks in bewilderment and stutters nervously. Hansen's upper body is muscular and well-developed. He's clearly physically strong, easily able to overpower any woman he would capture. His expression remains blank and impassive, his manner slightly hesitant, as if he's trying to figure out his next move. For a moment, the state troopers can't be sure whether he's going to cooperate or put up a fight. After all, he must realize why they're here. But what strikes the troopers most of all is how ordinary and even insignificant he looks. Is this really the man they're looking for? The vicious killer who's terrorized God knows how many women, making their last moments on Earth a living nightmare? Given Hansen's hobby as a hunter, the theory circulating at State Troopers HQ is that he took the women out to remote places so that he could hunt them down before killing them. The trophies that the FBI profilers believe he takes serve a similar purpose to the stuffed heads he mounts on his walls. Now, the hunter has been caught, and everyone on Glenn Flothy's team is determined that he will not get away this time. The troopers tell Hansen that they need him to come with them to answer a few questions. Pete glances from one to the other, his expression still giving nothing away. Then he takes off his apron and hangs it up. In the end, he goes quietly. Later, while Hansen's being questioned by Flothy and a colleague, Bullington and Smith return to the bakery and tell all the staff and customers to leave while they search the premises. 
another team of troopers is taking apart Hansen's plane. A third team arrives to search his home. When the raids take place, Hansen's wife, Darla, is in the middle of teaching a class at the house. The detectives can't help feeling sorry for her. From her deer-in-the-headlights expression, it seems she knows nothing about her husband's crime. Once they've got everyone out, the troopers begin their search. They're looking for anything that can link Hansen to the victims. Hair, fiber, ammunition, handcuffs, chains, mementos. Plothi also wants any flight plans and maps that Hansen may have, as well as financial records. The Hansen property is a large ranch-style house. There's a two-car garage packed with clutter, and almost an acre of land where Hansen could have buried evidence. In other words, this is gonna take some time. They make their first find in the basement, a storage cupboard stacked with rifles and handguns. It's Hansen's armory, but there's no 223 caliber gun. Their next significant find is in the bedroom. Behind the headboard of Hansen and Darla's bed, they find an aviation map. Okay, Hansen is a pilot, so he would have a flight map, but why is he hidden it in this odd place? And why is it marked with X's. Next, they find a box full of what appears to be disguises, including fake facial hair. Could this be Hansen's murder kit that the FBI profilers had told them to look out for? They find more guns in the living room and garage. Once again, none of them is a 223 caliber. The hours pass. A mood of dejection settles on the team. They know they haven't got enough. In fact, without a murder weapon, they haven't got anything. There's only one place left to search. The attic. Trooper Lieutenant Kaznick shines his flashlight beam into the confined roof space and tries to stifle a sneeze. Between the cross beams, the floor is stuffed with fiberglass insulation. You can feel his skin begin to itch as he crawls through it on his hands and knees. He works his way across the full width of the house, then moves forward a few inches to come back the other way, all the time probing insulation with one hand. It's a slow, painstaking process zigzagging his way methodically across the entire roof space. Thousands of square feet in total. Kaznick's allergies don't help. He reaches the final corner of the house, a space so narrow he has to lie flat on his stomach to shine his flashlight into it. He pushes his hand into the insulation and is surprised when it gives way. The gap has been hollowed out in the wadding. He shines his flashlight into the hole and gasps as he takes in what's there. More guns. And this time, one of them is a 223 caliber. It's a Mini-14 semi-automatic rifle. Surely this is the murder weapon. 
Ah, there's also a second aviation map, also marked with crosses, and a stash of jewelry, including a gold arrowhead pendant. Like every other officer who's worked this case, Kaznick remembers hearing about the gold arrowhead that Sherry Morrow's boyfriend gave her. There's no doubt in his mind that this is it, and that the other pieces of jewelry will be mementos that Hansen took from his other victims. They've got him. They finally got him. When Sergeant Flothy examines the maps found at Hansen's house, he discovers that four of the X's match the burial sites of Sherry Morrow, Paula Goulding, Aklutna Annie, and Joanne Messina. But there's a total of 21 X's marked. He feels an icy chill pass through him. Could each of these X's signify the resting place of a different victim? Is this Hansen's kill map he's holding in his hands? If that's the case, then Robert Hansen is the most prolific serial killer in Alaska's history. The Mini-14 rifle is sent away to the FBI's ballistic lab and is eventually confirmed to be the murder weapon. The gold arrowhead pendant is identified as Sherry Morrow's. Faced with the now overwhelming evidence against him, Hansen begins to crack. Initially confesses to five murders, the four they already know about, and one other. He reveals that he flew some of his victims in his plane to the remote spots where he killed and buried them. Hansen tries to minimize his crimes, claiming that he only killed sex workers. Somehow, to his twisted mind, that means that the murders didn't really count. In fact, it only shows the depth of his violent misogyny. Although he doesn't admit to hunting women down like prey, he uses a sinister expression to describe his activities. He calls it his summertime project. The killer's mask has truly dropped. Flothy and the DA believe that he's killed far more than he's admitting to. To get him to open up about these other killings, they agree to charge him only with the five they already know about. Hansen eventually confesses to 17 murders and leads the troopers to 12 bodies, all but one of which corresponds to marks on the kill map. On Monday, February 27, 1984, Hansen is sentenced to a total of 461 years. In his sentencing, the judge acknowledged the responsibility that society and the legal system itself bore for Hansen's crimes. Society as a whole had looked the other way as these women had gone missing. The legal system had allowed a violent killer to go free knowing he was dangerous. Robert Hansen died in prison in 2014. On hearing of his death, retired state trooper Glenn Flothy gave this statement. On this day, we should only remember his many victims and all of their families. And my heart goes out to all of them. As far as Hansen is concerned, 
this world is better without him. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. We head back to February 1861. Railroad bosses have just heard of a plot to destroy the railroads and disrupt the inauguration of President-elect Abraham Lincoln. They immediately call in the country's leading private detectives to help stop it. Alan Pinkerton of the famous Pinkerton National Detective Agency heads straight to Baltimore with two of his top agents, Kate Warren and new recruit Harry Davies. There, they learn the railroad plot is just the tip of the iceberg. These disgruntled Southerners will stop at nothing to prevent Lincoln from reaching Washington, even if that means killing the man himself. Suddenly, these eminent super sleuths find themselves in a desperate bid to save Abraham Lincoln and get him safely to Washington in time for the inauguration. <laughs>